People misunderstand each other when they're lazy. And if we can take the time to understand what makes someone tick in a space that we fundamentally disagree with and see the humanity of every single person, people can come together and really understand each other. And I think that's the power that we have as journalists. That was DuPont Award winner Ed O talking about his NBC News documentary, A Different Kind of Force, Policing Mental Illness. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, director of the Prizes Department at Columbia Journalism School. I'm joined today once again by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She's the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hi there, Lisa. Hello again, Abby. We're going to get back to talking about Ed O in a minute, but this is kind of a special episode for us, isn't it? Yes. It is our 75th episode wow. on assignment. I can't believe it. It really is hard to believe. But, you know, Lisa, looking back, we have had a ton of incredible conversations with DuPont Columbia winners and other reporters who have come up to Pulitzer Hall over these past six years. Some really in-depth and sometimes very candid interviews about life as a journalist covering some of the biggest stories of our time. Some big names, too. I'm thinking about Rachel Maddow, Henry Louis Gates, Michael Barbaro. Nicole Hannah-Jones in conversation with Lester Holt. You and I got to talk to Ira Glass for our 50th episode, plus local reporters like Michigan Radio's Lindsay Smith. We have amassed a serious archive, it's true, and it's all available on our website, onassignmentpodcast.com, which is a good thing because we have another announcement, which is that this will be our last episode for a while. Yes, we're going to be on hiatus for the next few months, gearing up for our 2022 DuPont Awards ceremony in February. But we're going to leave you with one last interview from a 2021 DuPont Columbia Award winner, Ed O. Lisa, you talked to Ed last year about this really gripping documentary focusing on policing people with mental illness. Tell us about it. It's an hour-long documentary that came out in 2019, and it's set in Texas, two separate cities. And Ed and his co-director, Kitra Kahana, made it for NBC News. Even today, a few years later, it's so timely. It's about how the police respond to people in the middle of a mental health crisis. And it had two main narratives. One, it highlighted a miscarriage of justice in Houston that happens all too often, uh, everywhere, where a mentally ill man was killed by police, and his sister very eloquently told his story and the issues around it. And that story is woven together with another, which is more of a follow, where there were scenes embedding in a unique San Antonio police unit that only responds to mental health calls. The cops in this unit get special training, and it might serve as a model throughout the country. So it was just the two of them, right? It was Ed and Kitra working together. So they had a really small footprint. Right. Really intimate. Remarkably immersive. We feel like we're riding alongside ourselves as the crisis calls come in. And then we feel like we're spending time with the men and the women who are actually going through it all and their families. We're with them while the police are there and even after they're gone. Mm. It really stands out as a really intimate, nuanced film that also steers clear of any easy answers. 
Yes, that was a remarkable part of it, the, the sense of nuance, the sense that it was very gray, and they looked at several different angles. And they also took great care at every turn to represent their subjects fairly and ethically. Right, which is no easy feat when you're tackling something as fraught as police violence or a group of people as vulnerable as those with mental illness. Yeah, we talk about that a lot in this interview. Should be instructive to anyone who's making a film or broadcast journalism, like some of our very own graduate students who will be embarking on their own master's projects pretty soon. Right, especially those doc students. This one just felt full of real-life examples for them. So here it is, Lisa's edited conversation with director Ed O, starting with a brief excerpt from the documentary as the mental health unit responds to a call from a husband whose wife is in crisis. 3262. We're getting information that she may be around this location. Is there any chance we can get people up here? Hey, how you doing? Hey, Officer Stevens, Ernie. Lewis, hey, Lewis. My partner, Gabe. Hello, sir. How long has she been acting this way? Uh, it's been since Saturday. We, she just believes that I'm having an affair and that I have a woman that I've gotten pregnant in our ceiling, hiding. I'm sorry you're having a bad day. <laughs> that past four days have been bad? Yes, sir. We want to get you some help. In the police academy, uh, we had no training on what it was like to deal with somebody that was mentally ill or in a crisis. I was probably the last officer that you wanted to help a loved one that was in a mental health crisis. She's watching us sleep. So I work on a specialized unit that only deals with people in a mental health crisis. Almost everything about how I respond to calls goes against what most would believe. I'm in plain clothes. I drive an unmarked car. My weapon is concealed. And for the last nine years, the only weapon that I've used is my ability to communicate. Are you some kind of like therapist or something? No, I'm, I'm a police officer. I think it would be nice if this documentary was kind of like a roadmap for law enforcement to be kind of like the best versions of themselves as they can be. Helping police officers kind of like reimagining or imagining like a role that they can play to do good in the community, which is why I would like to hope most police officers became police officers in the first place. It's just so amazing to me that this kind of thing works. It, it seems to be a great model. Why isn't every police department in the country embracing this? I think there is a lot of interest in this, and I think especially now, like, in which policing and use of force is being very specifically scrutinized by the public. But then the other big conversation is, like, should police end up being, like, the main responders to people in a mental health crisis? There's a lot of debate within this. You know, covering COVID, uh, I was working and covering a lot of, like, first responders, specifically EMS and paramedics, and you know, there's a line of thought which is EMS and not police should be the first responders to people in an emotional crisis. Uh, but then a lot of some EMS providers I talk to, paramedics will say like, no, well, we still want the cops there because like my life is at risk. There is no right or wrong answer. There's just like the balance of like, where does safety fit into all this and whose safety? Is it the healthcare provider? Is it the patient slash the person in a crisis? Out of all this is the big question that I think Americans are just kind of asking now, which is like, where do we allocate our resources? Is it to policing? Is it to mental health? Is it to first responders? And again, all of these questions are very valid and we're just here to pose the questions. Yeah, lucky us. We just have to, we just have to ask the questions. We don't have to answer them all. So this is kind of a broad question, but we ask it of everybody. Can you talk a little bit about why this story is so important? 
I mean, obviously you felt that way because you put the time and resources into it, but why do you think it's so important? Um, well, I think, especially in America, there is a constant conversation uh, between the public and where the police should fit. The other part of that conversation is where should people living with mental illness, like, where do they fit and how should they get treatment? Because what unfortunately ends up happening is that um, the police end up being the main providers of healthcare for people living with mental illness. And that's a question that everyone should be asking is that, do we want this? Um, so a high proportion of people in the criminal justice system, in jail, in prisons, are living with mental illness. And you know, that is a failing of a lot of different things. We shot this in 2018, edited this in 2019, and but in 2020, you know, a lot of the questions that have been raised after the killing of George Floyd of defunding the police, uh, how much budget should be allocated to police, you know, what are the proper use of force protocols? Those questions didn't start with the killing of George Floyd. They've always been a major question in kind of like the fabric of American society. What I really wanted we really want to talk about as well is how do we as the public perceive those living with mental illness because there's a lot of stigma related to mental illness as a whole there's a lot of misunderstanding of how families should treat those living with mental illness like people living with mental illness themselves it was really striking how prescient you were because you know you you did this aired an entire year pretty much before the george floyd murder and people out in the streets and talking about this and it's been such a, an ongoing topic of conversation. Very forward thinking, although as you said, it's not like it's the first time this has been a problem. Having covered you know, the George Floyd protests in May and June, and if you're a journalist who follows these use of force cases, I would say that if you thought that this story of use of force and policing started with George Floyd and ended after that waned, I would say that maybe you weren't paying attention. How did this story come about? So it, for me, you know, approaching the story, um, it, it is quite personal because, you know, in the course of the coverage that I've been doing, you know, like I've been struggling with my own issues with mental illness myself. Oh. I've been, you know, working through a lot of really specific like PTSD from the coverage that I've done and things I've seen. And so when I heard about this unit and how they approach people who are just in like the worst moment of their lives, um, there was something that really struck me about how these police officers were treating uh, people in emotional distress as just like human beings without judgment, without any stigma. Something clicked in me that I'm just like, I saw myself in the people that they encountered on a daily basis. That's the very personal and selfish reason. I really wanted to understand what mental illness looked like in other people because I kind of recognized it in myself. The wider thing for me is just like, I just wanted to find alternative solutions to policing so that when people talk about, you know, like defunding the police, which I understand is a very sensitive and loaded topic in America. What's important for us as journalists is to show issues that exist, but also find pathway forwards to different solutions so that you're not always like talking about the bad news, you're highlighting instances where people are getting it right, possibly. You embedded with a unit of I think it was nine people who are specifically dedicated to dealing with 
questions of mental illness and the calls that come in and you had extraordinary access. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked, how you got it and what was involved in keeping it and doing it? Yeah, so we spent a lot of time with these police officers about a month and a half going out on these like very specific mental health calls. And you know, like it's nothing that we could plan like because we just, Keitra, my partner and I understood that we just needed to be there to see how things go. Basically, we would go on these shifts with these police officers and we would basically wait for calls. And this is where it gets a little bit complicated because as journalists, you know, we have a huge responsibility to the ethics of like how we represent people living with mental illness. We're with these cops and we're now intruding on people's moments in the worst moment of their lives. We, we had a lot of different conversations about like, is what we're doing ethical? Are people assuming that we're with the cops? Or is there some sort of like a power dynamic that we as journalists coming in with cameras like are intruding on? So we would show up to these like very specific calls and uh, Keitra, my partner and I, you know, we would really have to read the room, so to speak, and like know that, you know, like there's someone who's in a crisis. And so a lot of that was negotiating, you know, getting permission to be on the property of someone's house from either the family. Uh, and then understanding that like families cannot consent really to like representation of an individual dealing with a mental health issue. Um, and so, you know, we would at that moment balance the need to capture a raw moment as it exists, but then also knowing that like it's kind of incumbent on us to follow up on this person that we film because we also realize that, you know, someone going through an emotional crisis at that moment cannot exactly consent in a meaningful way um, to right. being filmed. And then there's also a school of thought that's like someone living with mental illness maybe cannot consent, period, to knowing the implications of being filmed. Uh, so someone living with schizophrenia, for example, maybe they can never consent. And then, but at the same time, too, how do we give agency to those living with mental illness so that they can tell their stories but not make that decision for them? Because I think that's also equally problematic. A lot of that really just took time. You know, we would go back to people that we would film without the police and we'll say like, I know we met when we were with the police, but just so we're clear, like we're journalists, we're independent journalists, we're not with the cops. And like, even if you tell us to get lost right now, that has no bearing on any legal case you have. Were there people that you went back to who said, and you had a great moment, a great visual moment, and they said no, and then you walked away? Yes, uh, that happened a lot of times. Oh. For what you saw in the documentary, there's all like, maybe 10 times the footage that you didn't see. The flip side too is someone maybe would say yes, but then we would choose to blur their face. There are things that are legal that aren't ethical, and there's things that are ethical that aren't legal. So you would show up with the police and like right there, would you say, hey, we're press and can we come in? Or would you like just go in with them and then figure it out and then like come back to the people afterwards? Every situation was different uh, when we filmed. In order to not trespass, we would have to get permission from someone in that household to physically be inside. But also just, just because you're legally allowed and welcomed inside a space, then ethically doesn't necessarily mean that the person that you're filming uh, who's having a, men a mental health crisis is okay to consent to being filmed from an ethical level. It was really interesting to me that in the middle of the documentary, and I think in two places, you show you and maybe your co-director asking the main subject, Chris, are you okay with being filmed? 
Can you talk a little bit about the thinking that went into that? So, Chris, right now we're making a documentary. Okay. You know that, right? Yes, yes, sir. You remember when we talked about this? Yeah, and yeah, okay I didn't send the papers, yeah. Okay. And you're okay with us? Right now I'm okay with you filming this, yeah. Because this, this is a lot to get off my chest. In terms of someone like Chris, who is living with, you know, schizophrenia, and, you know, we filmed, like, the moment we met him, he was in a very specific crisis situation. Every time that we saw him, we would ask, like, do you remember us? We're the filmmakers who filmed you. We saw you in this situation, and then we went to dinner with you, and, you know, this and this, do you remember? And then, is it okay that we keep filming you? Is today a good day? Are you sure that, you know, you want to tell your story? That was so we could confidently feel that, you know, we weren't taking advantage of someone who was living with a mental illness. The reason why we put that in the actual film was I think we just wanted to be transparent with how we got that level of consent, um, because that is really important. I come from a background where we try to be, you know, a fly on the wall as journalists. And, you know, we tell ourselves we're neutral, we're impartial, we're just here to watch and document and witness, um, that we don't get involved in people's stories. You know, all of that should be true, but at the end of the day, like, our very presence in a lot of places does change the fabric of how something unfolds. Like, you just, you can't be in the same room as someone and pretend that you aren't causing an effect. You know, like everyone who knows that they're on camera, they're wearing a lav, a microphone, you know, they will act differently. And I think what we have to do is get enough access and get people comfortable enough with us that like they forget that we're there and that takes time. But more than that, not pretend that we're not there because we're definitely there. How did you get the access to begin with? Like, how did you get in with the cops? I actually, uh, I called someone who I saw uh, on a news package and I kind of like told him kind of like my background and um, this person, uh, his name was Joe, he was a military veteran. Uh, I, I saw like a talk that he gave um, about his own PTSD and about his own trauma and I called him and I just said like I could relate to a lot of the things that he was talking about. A lot of the work that previously done was in the Middle East and so that was a connection point and then you know like and that one thing led to another and then uh, he invited me to kind of come along and just see how things went. And that was it? You didn't have to like work through layers and layers of bureaucracy to get the police in San Antonio? There was a lot of bureaucracy but then the other thing too that was really interesting with this specific de police department is that they were fundamentally quite proud of what they were doing. Um, a lot of like a lot of it very much justified you know they wanted to kind of like show like a path forward and like the work that they did in terms of cit which is crisis intervention training and kind of like de-escalation training and so i think they were also quite open too you know it's one thing to be really proud of the work that you do but another thing to say okay get in the car drive around with them whatever happens you're going to be able to film it and trust that they're not going to end up looking really bad with a lot of the police officers you know they would say to us you know like Policing gets like a really bad rap. Like people are always being criticized by the media um, for X, Y, and Z. It's really important, I think, when you're building rapport with characters, no matter who they are, um, to be kind of like honest about your intentions. And if your intentions are, I just want to understand, you know, like how you feel, because I think 
There's there's something I actually think about a lot is that like everyone is the hero of their own story. And I think if you approach every single character that you film with a legitimate curiosity to understand what drives them, what their inner moral compass is, I think you'll find like both complexities and truth within that. And I think we approach that with, you know, the police officers that we knew at some point in time we had to be also incredibly critical of to equally question their actions. And so to give you a point of reference, like after, so uh, after covering Minneapolis, um, the George Floyd protests, um, you know, I was targeted by police officers and injured. And um, a lot of the cops in San Antonio called me after because they saw me in the news and they were just, and we had like really interesting conversations about, you know, like, George Floyd and use of force and, you know, like the targeting of journalists and systemic racism within policing. And a lot of our characters in San Antonio were, you know, like police who were black and Hispanic. And, you know, like it's just not what you think. And there's no easy narrative. And if there is an easy narrative, then it's probably lazy. Can you tell me the story about what happened to you at the George Floyd protests? I was in Minneapolis covering the protests that happened after George Floyd was killed. I was like targeted by the Minnesota State Police. I was in like a group of journalists. Uh, we were like clearly, clearly marked as journalists and um, they fired concussion grenades at us and something hit me in the face and then they came and pepper sprayed me and beat me with batons, uh, knowing full well that um, we were journalists. Nowhere near any protesters. Uh, and uh, we were very much targeted uh, by the police. And uh, yeah, I ended up in the hospital with like four stitches and kind of a concussion and pepper sprayed in the face. It was really kind of messed up. And someone with you was hurt even more badly, right? Yeah, um, the, there's a photojournalist who was like literally next to me um, who lost her eye. Yeah, no, it was a really, um, yeah, it was really messed up. And it was just really shocking that the police were acting so brazenly in targeting specifically journalists. You've covered protests all over the world. How is it going for us here in the United States? Is it worse for journalists, do you think, at this point? Is it the same? And what do we do about that? Yeah, no, I, I spent most of my career covering um, not America. So I was mostly in the Middle East. And so I guess coming to America, um, a lot of the what I thought would be like, it'd be a lot easier. Um, that hasn't always been true. It's a really complicated question. Like I think America has a really, a very specific image of itself. It wants to project like this, like moral superiority to the rest of the world. And in a lot of ways that is true because the U.S. definitely sets the tone for how a lot of um, ideals should be when it comes to democracy or human rights or, you know, like, policing or freedom of expression. And, you know, for the most part, like, that is true when you consider alternates of superpowers like China or Saudi Arabia or Russia. But I think also, too, when the U.S. undermines its own principles when it comes to freedom of speech and assembly, uh, freedom of protest, it undermines that for the rest of the world. So. As a journalist who has covered the Middle East, to see the brazen attacks on journalists, it 
undermines its own narrative. So I have a vested interest in American journalists and journalists in America being able to just like report and protesters being able to protest peacefully without fear of retribution or attack. Because if people in America can, then it sends a really specific message to other places that these are values that are important to the world. That must have been really hard for you, having spent all this time embedded with these police in San Antonio and suddenly you're being attacked by them as their enemy. Yeah, I think it was definitely difficult. It's interesting to spend a lot of time with like the San Antonio police where we like are on a first name basis with them, but then the outward projection of what then police officers are, are a bunch of people in riot gear. And I think what's interesting is, you know, when we boil people down to their titles, like the police, the media, the protesters, that's where like we lose everyone's humanity. For the police officer who absolutely knew as a journalist who pepper sprayed me in the face and beat me with a baton, what's going through their heads and like what preloaded assumptions do they have about, let's say, journalists that justified why beating a journalist who was clearly identified was okay. And that's something that I would really love to understand. And I think that's like, what is really special about like, what we can do as journalists is that like, we have, it's kind of like a really, it's a huge privilege that I can spend time with the, these police officers in San Antonio in 2018 and 2019, and then call them during the George Floyd protests to kind of like, pick their brain as to like what they're thinking and like how they see things and kind of like that, those conversations inform the reporting that I did this year. What was the response from these folks, the, the police that you followed around when the piece was finally aired? The response from the police was actually quite good. You know, I think they saw a lot of themselves represented pretty fairly and accurately. A lot of the people and the families living with uh, mental illness and dealing with that, they also saw that relatively positively. And then uh, Marquita, the, the person who we filmed, who you know, had a brother who was killed by the police, you know, like everyone shared it, everyone commented on it, and everyone like saw kind of like their story within this. That's all we can ask for as filmmakers, as journalists, is that like, even though a lot of their narratives essentially compete with each other and contradict each other in the same film, if, a character can see themselves in the validity of their story and then the validity of like even their foil uh, in the same film and feel like they were represented right, then I feel like we've done our good job as journalists to be able to kind of do that. That's great. I mean, I know that one of the great tropes of journalism is when you do something controversial and the response is that everybody hates you and is mad at you, then you know you've done a good job. And in a way, yours is exactly the opposite, which is that if everybody feels that they've been represented, it's a different kind of journalism and it's equally as important, I think. People misunderstand each other when they're lazy. And if we can take the time to understand the what makes someone tick in a space that we fundamentally disagree with and see the humanity of every single person, people can come together and really understand each other. And I think that's the power that we have as journalists in order to really do that. And if we can do that, then I just hope that there will be more empathy and understanding in this world so that we can all just be better and better to each other. Yeah. One of the things I just want to say that I really, really loved about this work was how 
you addressed things from so many different angles. Like you didn't just say this is wrong or this is great. Then you would turn around and say, yeah, but let's look at it in context or let's look at it from a different angle. Let's hear what the cops are going through. Let's hear what the victims are going through. And it was very nuanced and in that way, a little bit unusual for what I feel like we often see. And I really, I really thought that was particularly successful and the jurors felt that that was very successful. How important was that to you? And how did you make sure to do that? I think finding nuance is like the entire basis of how I operate. And it is our job to literally traffic in nuance. That is what we do. A lot of editors want like a script or like they want to cast out characters in advance. And I always kind of push back against that, which is like, if I know what I'm about to get when I go to get it, why am I going then? Especially in quick turn journalism or journalism that is a lot lazier. Um, it's really hard to fight for the time to be able to find that nuance because to do it that in depth just takes time. It takes time to be at the moments to like get that level of intimacy and also just takes time in the edit to process and figure out like what to make of all this. And I think that is kind of like the biggest tension within our industry is like, can we achieve that level of moral complexity with the stories that we do in the time that we have in a constantly shifting news cycle? And I think that's just a constant battle that I have with both myself, my editors, or anyone I work with. And it, it's, it's difficult, um, but we try. Well, it showed, it really showed. And I'm sure your footage, I don't know how much you ended up shooting, but I'm sure your footage was like exponentially greater than what we saw. Yeah, there were a lot of scenes that we ended up cutting and it's always a balance of fighting for the right things to fight for and kind of like compromising with the wider machine of what may or may not be worth the fight if you can win another battle. And I think that's like the constant struggle for as journalists. And I think that process, having done this multiple times now, ultimately always makes things better. Does it ever get easier? Uh, no, it never gets easier. Uh, I have yet to really do a story that was simple. I guess I would ask the question, if it's really that easy, why are you doing it? Well, maybe not simple, but I, you know, there's this part of me, as someone who's done this before, that feels like, yeah, I've done this. Why shouldn't I be able to think this through more clearly and learn from the, and it sort of never feels like that happens. It always feels like you're in that same, I don't know what to do. Yeah, kind when of you're pitching something or when you're thinking of an idea, there's always the like, oh, it's been done. Why am I doing this? Then you fight your editors to get in the field. And then once you get in the field, you're like, oh, crap. I finally got this pitch proof. Now it has to be good. And then like the initial like five days is like, oh, nothing's happening. Oh my God, this story is going to be a mess. And then every scene that you get is just like, a, oh, thank God I got something. And the first cut you see is always going to be like, oh crap, like maybe it wasn't that good. And you just, like, at no point in time throughout this entire process is it ever easy. And then by the time you publish, you're just like, oh crap, what if I like had a glitch or a typo in this? I don't want to watch this just in case like... <laughs> Well, that's not so encouraging for our students, but it's so realistic. <laughs> it's always a very neurotically insecure process and it never ends. But it's worth it, right? It's worth it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> this is great. This is really, really helpful. Thank you very, very much. This was amazing and congratulations again.
Thanks again to Ed O for taking the time to talk with me. You can watch A Different Kind of Force Policing Mental Illness on YouTube, and you can find the link to it on our website, onassignmentpodcast.com. And we'll be announcing the 2022 winners at our DuPont Columbia Awards Ceremony in February. You can watch along online at dupont.org. Yes, and we'll be ramping up to the ceremony by featuring all 30 of our finalists on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and just about anywhere else we can think of. So make sure you're following us on Twitter. We're at Columbia Journ. On Instagram, we're at Columbia Journalism. And on Facebook, at DuPont Columbia Awards. That's it for On Assignment. This episode, like all our episodes, was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Emily Pisacreta. Our sound engineer was A.J. Mangone. We also had assistance from our program administrator, Melanie Marich. Our DuPont fellows are Jaden Edison, Emily Russell, and Evan Solis. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Until next time, 